0: Welcome to episode seven of the Cultural Capital Podcast. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Fiz.
1: I'm Eloise Ross.
0: And we welcome back our special guest, author and critic, Amon Crawford. Hello. Thank you very you much. Brought for brought me back. back. <laughs> no, it's amazing. I never thought we'd that be back. It is able amazing. This. <laughs> um, so, MIF is over for another year, which gives us a really good point from which to look back on the highlights and forward to the films that are getting a general release, if not, then worth seeking out online. So last episode we discussed our favourite discoveries from Miff in week one, and this week we'll be singling out other films for discussion, specifically Personal Shopper in Jackson Heights Tickled, and things to come with some personal favourites from the festival. everything Cara asked for. You can... I'm a personal shopper. I, I,
1: I hate this job actually. I spend my days doing bullshit. That doesn't interest me and it keeps me from what does. It's driving me fucking crazy. You should come here. I need to go back to
0: Lewis's house. Give me the tiniest thing. Anders. Yes. Let's talk personal shopper.
2: Yes, can we? Um, I thought this was a really interesting uh, follow-up for Olivia Assayez and Kristen Stewart, um, who both teamed up in the really wonderful Clouds of Sils Maria. Um... There's a lot going on in this film. Can you Um, tell
3: us what it's about?
2: Yeah, so basically it follows Kristen Stewart's character. She plays a, well, a personal shopper for this sort of uh, one-named, one-word diva star. Um, But she's also a medium trying to reconnect with her dead twin brother. Well, she's waiting for him to, like, leave her a sign that he's at peace. Um, So, yeah, she basically, the film follows her as she navigates both of these worlds, the world of, like, Uh, glamorous boutique shopping for her boss and also this world of communicating with the dead and uh, seeing spirits and that kind of stuff. Um, what I found really interesting about the film is how it sort of blends all of these disparate elements into one sort of crazy concoction. And often in the same scene or uh, very, you know, quickly, uh, it uh, her character navigates these two worlds. Um, and I think it's sort of, that's what makes it interesting. It's looking at how we sort of juggle, um, you know, death and loss and emotion with our sort of like daily lives um and in this case it's quite a glamorous daily life that she leads uh what did you guys think
1: i really liked it i got very involved in the plot um and also in christian stewart's character and i don't know i just feel like it's necessary to comment that about halfway through or even more than halfway you find out that her name is maureen Crawford, Cartwright. is it? Cartwright, Cartwright. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that she just kind of has this very um, unassuming name yeah. is <laughs> quite just quite a nice little oddity about the film, but I really <laughs> liked it. It was this, like, fantastic blend of genres, you know, thriller and supernatural, a little bit of, you know, dark melodrama in there even. Um, and it did that really well. It didn't spell anything out for the audience. I think, you know, it didn't kind of really explain how she was a medium or, like, how her brother died or how she ended up in Paris Mm. or why she wasn't maybe necessarily in a good space with her possibly boyfriend. Um, It just kind of put all of these things in the narrative and then formed um, Maureen's path around them. Um, And so I was really kind of caught up in in everything in that way and I um, appreciate Asias for, for doing that. I was really liked the ghosts. Um, they were really. <laughs> there were only a few of them, and very strange appearances. But I, I thought they were really yeah. well done. Up there with, I don't know. I think C- Crimson Peak had really good ghosts, even though it was a terrible film. So, anyway, up there with those guys.
0: <laughs> controversial opinion there.
1: Oh, it's big. yeah. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can have a controversial opinion podcast later on. Oh, in I the can't year. wait for that. Yeah, really
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I felt as if Kristen Stewart really carried this film. She's in nearly every scene and her very particular blend of vulnerability and blankness, it's a very strange combination mm-hmm. that she has of, of of seeming to be at once kind of very affectless and bored and yet at the same time incredibly... Vulnerable and attuned. I mean, and the fact that she's playing a medium in the film kind of emphasizes this quality in her acting, of of this kind of uh, these minute vibrations um, of of kind of emotional attunement. And yeah, she. I, I, it's a film that I didn't love, like I loved Clouds of Sils Maria, but nevertheless, I think she's amazing in it. And I think also working with SAS has been so great for her in terms of the fact that obviously in in both these films that he's made now, he has cast her as an assistant to someone more famous which has the effect of I think quite consciously playing with our image of Kristen Stewart as a celebrity Mm. and there are lots of scenes in this film where she is trying on clothes for the boss character But, of course, in doing that, we get to reflect on Kristen Stewart as a celebrity figure and perhaps the role that these kind of banalities (laughs) play in her own life. I mean, I I think it's very clever and I think that the two of them together are doing something really interesting. Um, It didn't all quite gel for me. Some of the ghost stuff I found a little overplayed perhaps perhaps Nevertheless, there's also a really interesting of uh, various subplots going on to do with technology. I think in your review, um, Anders, you wrote about this, that the, these many, many shots of of uh, the Maureen character kind of texting on her phone and she's she's texting someone who we don't know. We don't know who this person is. We don't know if they're alive or dead. But it's not gimmicky. It's just kind of again this this kind of odd line between banality and something much more uncanny that's going on in 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 this use of technology
1: yeah that's Mm. totally right I think you like that word banality is so being so true with this film and you know talking about this is one of my I think it's becoming more and more necessary talking about the representation of text messages Mm. and emails on screen Mm. but it's such a I don't know. It's such an annoying topic because, in so many ways, it's such an annoying kind of communication. Um, but it's done very well in this, and you can just kind of you experience her reception of text messages in the same way that she might receive them.
3: Well, it's happening um, in real in time, time isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. you see sh- you see her typing them. You see the response come up on yeah, the screen. Yeah, you see
1: her reading them. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: It, it becomes like a bit of a, a rhythmic. Thing with, like, the sounds of the vibrations and the, like, sending uh, the whoosh of yes. the iPhone mm. message. Mm. And then uh, what I loved and what I've been going on about, harping on about, is her use of airplane mode in this movie. Mm. I just love how, like, <laughs> when it all gets overwhelming for her, she just, like, presses one button on her phone and the messages, like, disappear and she goes back to her daily life or to ordering a beer at the uh, train station or whatever it is And she then she do doesn't drink it. it. I know. She was in such a rush. <laughs> not not moment, always on the go. Yes.
1: <laughs> my, one of my pet peeves about films. People ordering drinks and not drinking them. <laughs> um, anyway, I just wanted to mention, talking about Kristen Stewart's performance, because it's obviously essential and it's a key part of this film and probably... Um, you know, I can't, uh, at this point in time, I can't imagine this film being made with anyone else. No, 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 Because she is so essential and it does comment on her her public persona. And her acting performance is sort of the same as her public persona is becoming, like this kind of distanced warmness. Mm. Like there's kind of this distance warmness to her, which I think is kind of how we see her in public life as well, where she obviously has, a you know, a lot of emotions, obviously, and a lot of feeling, but she doesn't want to show it. Mm, mm. And so there's this resistance to her kind of re- revealing of any
2: emotions. It's mm.
1: really stunning.
2: It's, it's so funny how we're talking about her in terms of these, like, almost impossible to reconcile mm. uh, sort of binaries. Like, the way I uh, thought of it, she, she appears like she's in the scenes, but she's not... She's physically in a scene, but she's also consciously and emotionally not... For some, at some points, you know, you can tell she's thinking about other things uh, to do with her character. I'm assuming, um, and so it's this weird thing. It's, it's, yeah. Is she
1: like the opposite of a ghost or something? <laughs> I have a,
2: a good question. Mm. Yeah, there we go. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I was queuing up for um, certain women like, yesterday um, and was discussing with a few friends in the queue if we'd ever seen her smile in a film before and whether this might be the first film in which we did and we didn't. But uh, <laughs> right. I, was, I was just thinking, like, that's a really interesting way of the, just how much is repressed. It's almost a little more a European style of acting, I feel. Mm,
1: yeah. Um, Juliet Binoche like, maybe, in some ways. Mm commenting on her performance in Clouds of silver. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's Another right.
2: film that's interested with technology. Is, Absolutely, is, is, yeah. Is this is an ongoing theme for it? him.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think so, I think so. Um, and th- there's really interesting links in, in this film, In Personal Shopper, between contemporary technology in terms of iPhones and then Kristen Stewart's character is also l- investigating... Things to do with early photography yeah. and stuff like that, and and kind of making. And again, I didn't feel like the film. I felt like the film was trying to say something really interesting about this, and maybe not getting all the way there with that conceptual thread. Nevertheless, it was thought provoking. Um, and again, I think has to do with with this with this sense of the kind of technological uncanny. What can these technologies do? how, I mean, it it, it it did remind me of the kind of strangeness of a situation where, which we've all probably experienced where you may be texting someone who you've never met before and it's, it's, really it could be anyone. I mean, this is the kind of what makes the film in a way quite genuinely um, scary at times is that mm-hmm. she's in this situation of, of of texting this person. We don't know who that is, but we've kind of all been in that situation or even if we think... We're communicating with someone that we know. How do we know? How do we know that, in fact, we are? Mm. Um, it raises all kinds of interesting questions. I, I,
2: particularly, I think, when you when you text in, like, maybe a more open or vulnerable, when you put yourself in a more vulnerable yeah. position, which she does in yes. this film uh, yeah. when she's talking about trying on her boss's clothes mm. and, like, rebelling mm. and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I think we've all had that feeling where, like, you put yourself out there while you're texting and you're like, uh, yeah, yes. This, is the intended recipient, you know, receiving this the way I intend them to?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. What is their what is their immediate response rather yeah. than their texted yeah response? Totally.
3: Yeah, mm. yeah. It's very it's very thought provoking film. Yeah. While we're
0: on the subject of uh, French directors mm. and
1: fabulous women
0: and fabulous women, things to come, <laughs> aka Le Venier... Yeah,
3: by is, the second half of this directorial. Mm. Super partnership.
2: <laughs> yes, mm. Yeah. Oh, are Hanson? they married? Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, didn't
3: <laughs>
0: Mia Hansen Love is I think it's how you pronounce her name. Yes. Is the director of uh, Things to Come. And this is another film set in modern Paris about um, domestic dramas. So her previous films, Eden and uh, Father of My Children, a couple of the more notable ones. Uh, in this one, she likes is- Isabelle Be an author of philosophy textbooks. And she seems very intellectually equipped to deal with massive social and professional changes. But as a middle-aged woman, she barely shed, seems to shed a tear in this film, which is actually about a lot of um, domestic disruptions and quite devastating events that a lot of people would usually associate with big emotional outbursts. But uh, her character, Natalie, t- tackles fairly similar territory to some of the people in The Father of My Children, which is also quite a cool and fairly detached, I thought, um, a film about um, these sort of life-altering events. Mm. So she kind of plays her as more of a central and open-minded and youthful character, I thought, and I thought she gave one a, a really, really strong performance, a typically very strong performance. What did you guys think of um, Things to Come?
1: It's interesting that you kind of outlined the film in terms of her not responding typically to, you know, kind of events that destroy her domestic life, her family, her career even. I sort of, I really, I was just yearning for her to get much more angry all the time, or even, you know, once or twice. The film did sort of sense build up to that and kind of make the audience want it but but we never got this big Mm. outburst um and I kind of but I kind of think maybe that was its strength like it made Mm. the film sort of more eerie um and a little bit more uh, I felt quite displaced from the film and from her experiences but maybe that was maybe that was the point I don't yeah. know and then I thought you know she's a philosophy teacher after all like maybe she just takes a really kind of laid-back approach to everything
0: I thought that was also true of the one main male performance in the film where you thought there may be some sort of romance blossoming mm. there but it just
1: it but goes off in a different was. direction I mean I always like that because it's an easy thing to do is to to make a romance mm. between mm. two people just happen um, and then that's um, kind of consummation of a romance might cause problems but I enjoyed that the problems kind of come came from it not going anywhere
3: mm. Mm. Yeah, so.
1: mm. um, anyway I loved this film because it was just about a woman kind of and dealing with everything in her life breaking down but I think that kind of exploration on screen is really important mm. and and I loved it yeah what cool. did you make of that one
3: um I, l- I liked it um it's definitely a r- after her rave interlude of Eden. It's definitely a return to the territory of Father of My Children, a drama among the Parisian bourgeoisie. I liked it a lot. Isabella Huppert is fantastic and, again, she really carries the film. To me, it maybe felt in some aspects a little bit of a lost opportunity. The film opens at a student protest and this character, Isabella Huppert's character, kind of crosses you know she teaches at the university she crosses the student picket line there's a confrontation and and you kind of find out throughout the film that she was once a communist her husband was never a communist but nevertheless seems to be of the left to some degree the younger man with whom she never forms a relationship is an anarchist so there's an investment in radical politics and and it comes up a few times but it never never really goes anywhere and I felt after the film finished that it seemed to me that the only thing that was at stake in terms of the characters' political disagreements was the question of a sexual relationship and but I wanted there to be more at stake I, I wanted it was such an interesting setup and and I felt I just felt like that for me, you know, I, I was I was kinda longing for the film to say more and I kept expecting it to mm. I expect I kept expecting the plot to arrive at a point where these conflicts over politics would go somewhere and it didn't for me.
1: I haven't seen um her two or her many previous films. I know she has made more than two. Yeah. I haven't seen any of them. I didn't see Eden, mm. but I kind of feel like I don't know. And when I mean, obviously, there's a difference between a film making a point and a film being unfulfilling. But perhaps that there was little at stake, and the film didn't really kind of go anywhere. It was sort of a like a kind of mirror comment on the fact that her life just. Maybe completely broke down and um, didn't like didn't go where she expected it to, and all of her like attempts at trying um, certain things like were kind of failed. Yeah,
3: yeah, I know what you mean, but at the same time, the film seemed to want to frame her life in a more contemporary political context with mm. the student protests and stuff like that. There's, and there was lots of name dropping of contemporary political oh, yeah. mm. philosophers. It seemed to be gesturing somewhere else outside of her life and and to be wanting to say something about contemporary politics without actually ever saying that. Yeah, I felt it was actually
0: more interested in, in theor- mm. theory than, act- than action because there was a lot of intentional bookshelves yeah, behind there in were. the back of these scenes where yeah. you could, like, stop and look at the, if yeah. you wanted to, look at the spines. And she seemed to deal mainly in theory and her, her, she was famous, her income mm. came from publishing theoretical the textbooks for philosophy students, which we're getting out of date. Which is yes. quite notable. I know, the, yeah, I did be.
1: kind of feel very engaged by the breakdown of her career by um, the interference of bureaucracy and marketing. Mm. Um, mm. at, you know, destroying um, thought, <laughs> Yes, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
3: But, I mean, it's my bias speaking too. I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in, in... the As someone who is invested in radical left politics, I'm always interested in how it's going to be depicted because mm. it really is. Yeah. And it felt like a glimmer of something that... that Do you think
1: it was mm. because oh. she didn't really know how to, like, engage with the politics and so she just kind of name-dropped them, as you said, rather than dealing with them...
3: Hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
0: I'd have to think about that. Well, but it's, a, it's a fairly common, th- like, um, allegation against the bourgeoisie is that they will theoretically deal with these, you know, these leftist ideals, but they'll re- rather continue to
3: save well, their lifestyle, which uh, actually and brings and that was part, part of the plot. plot so. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Directly yeah. addressed. And so, how about yeah. you, Anders? What?
2: Uh, yeah. Look, I, I thought it was a, a fine drama. Mm. Um, I, I don't have anything particularly exciting to say about it. Um, I thought. Once again, Hugh Pair carried it. In terms of a a portrait of a woman maybe trying to uh, reclaim control of her life as it sort of spun slightly derailed, I think it was very compelling and interesting and, um, yeah, well realised, I guess. uh, Eccentric choices of music, I found. Mm. Yeah, interesting, particularly that end credits where the camera sort of just slowly zooms back from her as she's like holding her granddaughter. Mm. Um, and then there's an empty and,
0: room and yeah. the, the, the Fleetwoods version of Unchained Melody yeah, kind of it. kicks in, mm. which is um, unusual, yeah.
1: Shout out to Edith Schaub as well and her performance. Yes. Oh, the, yes, you know, yeah. Very key female <laughs> French performer yeah. in cinema. I always oh, love yes. it when she <laughs> comes up. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, got some great lines.
2: <laughs> I have always said that Jackson Heights is the, the most diverse community in the whole world, literally. We have 167 different languages spoken here. So we are very, very proud of that diversity. Let's salute that and let's all be proud of what we have accomplished here.
0: Now onto in Jackson Heights.
2: This is Frederick Wiseman's follow-up to 2014's documentary At Berkeley, and um, this is real sort of fly-on-the-wall stuff. There's no narration, no talking heads, just lots and lots of scenes filmed in and around the Queen's neighbourhood Jackson Heights um, over a period of, I think it takes place, 2013 to 2014. He films... So he places his cameras and captures... Very sort of long, uh, interesting scenes. It's a long film. It goes for three hours. In all sorts of different sort of community organisations, the local council, the laundromat, the, you know, tattoo parlour, like you sort of, you name it, he's got his cameras there. And just sort of observing uh, life in Jackson Heights. I thought it was an exceptional movie, as as, uh, at Berkeley was too. They sort of, they have this cumulative emotional effect where you sort of give in and after after a couple of hours at all, you become really invested in these characters. He goes back to some of these uh, organisations that he sort of captures uh, to see, you know, what they're doing at different times. Um, he, he Sometimes uh, you'll have characters from, like, different... Or people from, I should say, uh, people from different different sections of his film joining together. So, like, uh, we follow... Um, an LGBTI uh, advocacy group uh in the film and then we also follow follow like the city councilman and his office in the film and then like maybe two hours into the movie they have a pride march and you see all of these people together mm-hmm. um and it's just I don't know it's a really lovely portrait of how this neighborhood operates and and also the challenges that it faces as well
3: mm, yeah I I I really loved it and um I think as you said to me, and it's remarkable how he how Frederick Wiseman can build a narrative just through editing, yeah. you know, because there is no voiceover, there's there's no there's no narrative structure to speak of. You never really know where the film is gonna go or where each scene is gonna go. But nevertheless, as you said, it, it accumulates into into something. And I love I love the way that Frederick Wiseman pays such patient attention both to institutions, but to the formation of democracy, which is really emphasised in this film. There are several strands, really. We've got the city councilmen. We've got the LGBTI organising groups. We've got um, immigrant support groups who... And there's there's a lot of discussion, including quite a harrowing take Mm. where we hear one woman's story about her daughter crossing Mm. the border from Mexico into the United States... There's so all these things going on to kind of give us this portrait of, and there's there's also a kind of an, an important strand in the film about gentrification. So there's all these things going on which kind of give us a sense of the way in which these on the ground community groups and and different kinds of communities really do so much work and so much labour to, you know, I guess create their 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 kind of visions of. Of, of democracy, and, and I love the way that Frederick Wiseman does that in his films.
1: I just think he's really, even though he's, you know, so kind of removed from his um, subjects and he's just very observational and no commentary, no kind of narrative, as you said, he's very compassionate about yes. everything, yeah. and I love that, and you can just sense it by the, you know, the time that he allows people to talk for, um, and sort of the things that he includes, he definitely has, you know, a, a politics that is visible yes. in his filmmaking. And you can see it where he, you know, and in, in Jackson Heights, I think is very much about like, you know, um, just people living in a community trying to survive and trying to survive against the kind of terrible incoming um Modernisation, I suppose, sort of a film about the American dream and how that is still exists within society, within New York, within mm. Queens, but it's, you know, it's basically only used as kind of um, an agenda or, or a marketing tool now. It's not actually abided by by mm-hmm. larger institutions. Um, my sort of lasting memory of this, I saw this film in manhattan in december actually so i'm kind of going from memory but my, one of my lasting memories is the the talk um uh the section in i think it's in maybe a kebab shop or some sort of shop in jackson heights and he's talking about the rents being raised yes. because of because there's a gap store coming in yeah and once a gap store comes into an an Um, neighborhood, then all of a sudden um, real estate owners say, oh, well, this is obviously, you know, an up-and-coming neighborhood, so they will, you know, obviously raise the rents and push the small business owners out. But there's something very kind of ironic about him talking about Gap because Gap is, like, famously the most boring clothing chain in New York, and even I think in 2014 had its marketing campaign was something along the lines of, like, dress average <laughs> mm. i think that that like maybe were the with the <laughs> words used but anyway i mean it's not funny because it's obviously devastating that these people are losing their livelihoods in jackson heights but there was something about the you know the gap mm, yeah, mm. And as the instigator of that
2: i distinctly remember so they're having these discussions about the sort of oncoming threat of gap and then 50 minutes later, he films out the front of a Gap store with Mm -hmm. its opening 70% off sale. Mm -hmm. So, and it's just, I mean, it's quite amazing how he'll plant a seed and then hours, literally hours later in the film, it sort of pays off in this way. It does, Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think your point on the American dream is a very interesting one. I think, like, uh, to me it looked like it was various competing American dreams, how they sort of, how they butt up against each other and the resulting mess from all of that, which is this suburb at the moment. Um, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. And because it's about, and I mean, having lived in America myself, I, I feel as if Americans are invested in a way that we in Australia never are yeah. in the process of what it means to be an American. Totally. And and this, this kind of sense of self actualization and of democratic participation in the project of America. And, mm. and the, the film does really show that in in microcosm, but in as you say, in kind of various microcosms, mm. there there are kind of different ways to, to go about that. And I mean the thing that's so remarkable about him as a filmmaker is that he can get I mean, he, he he's really a filmmaker who who gives you a sense of the the grace and the extraordinary things that are that are in the ordinary, that are in everyday life. And he gets it without i watch his films and i think how did you how did you get all this on camera i mean really as a basic yeah. question because his his characters so to speak or, or the subjects of his films never seem to be aware of the camera though they must mm-hmm. be um it's quite remarkable that as you say always he can kind of maintain that observational distance and yet at the same time be so compassionate. I mean, nothing in his films are ever cruel. You know, there's, there's never a sense of anyone being depicted to be made fun of mm. or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, I think he's a remarkable filmmaker.
1: And the way he captures the... the um, you know the streets and the interiors, but also just every like all of the phenomena that make up New yes, York as a city, or just anywhere as a city, or any place as a place that he any place that he focuses on in his films is really beautiful. You know the the streetscapes and the soundscapes, yeah. Um, and the attention to detail is is really quite engaging. So it's definitely something that you know I could sit and watch for three hours or even six if you know <laughs> yes, if it was, was. Oh, he made six.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Which he has, and we yeah. should I. I I mean, we should mention here. I think we were all quite taken aback by the number of walkouts in in these yeah, MIF screenings. Sure. Uh,
1: <laughs> People walked out even when I saw it in New York. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm. Wow.
3: It was. Um, I, I think at least a third of the audience walked out of the screening that I saw. So I'm not sure what people were expecting, but um, yeah, <laughs> it's snap. It's snappy for a Frederick Wiseman film. <laughs>
2: <It's hilarious>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so from a really serious uh, sounding documentary to one that's a lot dafter. Tickled uh, is about uh, the New Zealand's number one light entertainment journalist, uh, David Farrier, who stumbles across a bizarre competitive endurance tickling video, wherein young men are paid to be tied up and tickled. Uh, So he reaches out to this... He stences a good story and reaches out to the company but receives a reply of um, an an email attacking his sexual orientation and threatening extreme legal action. So, um, of course, he stences an even bigger story here and reaches out to this bullying sender, and the film that follows tends to veer from what seems like it's going to be like a light whimsical documentary into a, a big uh, exploration of cyberbullying and legal threats, off, and, and it seems to echo a lot of the political discussions as well at the moment about bullying and egocentricity. Um, what did you guys make of this?
2: Well, I, look, I found this quite a compelling documentary. It does, it has this like funny shift maybe a, a third of the way in, and it, it goes where you're uh, where I wasn't quite expecting it to. I mean, it starts in in this sort of, oh, uh, lol, competitive tickling. That's the zany mm. kind of thing. And then it sort of ends up, um, I think, being a much more complex exploration of that, which is to the film's absolute benefit, I think. Mm. And it, it, for, well, it forced me to then reassess my uh, you know, original response to the idea of competitive tickling, which then raises the question, is, is, it, uh, is it problematic that it sort of uses that gimmick as a way in, I'm, I'm mm. not sure.
1: I think it is. I yeah. um, didn't like this film at all. I don't really... It's obviously a very interesting subject matter with this guy, David... Ferrier. Um, t- no, that's the director, David oh, D'Amato, or what, or the, I think that's the name of, of the guy, the subject. Um, and that's, you know, extremely interesting, but I just felt, like, so uncomfortable by the shift from this being a film about competitive tickling to a film about um, this this guy who exploits people around him and I was very drawn in by the trailer but the film just didn't do it for me, it didn't have the same pace or rhythm or kind of engagement it overdid so many documentary cliches in terms of like what he put on screen, the music that it used, that like thriller music Yeah, I'm putting like, the film up colour I think Stop that you- it, alright, oh. anyway Whatever it was, I didn't like it. But it, I found the last the last scene, the last line of the film, very moving. And I do understand that there was that shift there and the shift mirrored David Ferrier's own investigation because he's an, uh, an investigative journalist, or a journalist at least. Anyway, but I just... Yeah, I didn't. It didn't get me on board. I did like the last line. Um, well, like I guess like is maybe the wrong word because it's quite sad and devastating. Mm. What happened to this man's life and the people around him? Um, but in terms of being a documentary, I don't know. Maybe it just shouldn't have been called tickled, or it should have been like marketed differently. Um, maybe it was just too sensationalist for its own mm. good.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, I got to catch up with David Ferrier while he was in Melbourne and asked him a few questions Mm. um, about that. Was it just you two doing the detective work? It seems like there must have been an awful lot that went on outside of the film.
4: Yeah, no, there there was a lot that went on outside of the film, but primarily it was Dylan and I and we had a Facebook group called the Tickle Friends. And there were about maybe four people in there um, Mm -hmm. and Dylan's wife that took it to five. Yeah. And the Tickle friends were drawn in by the original blogs that I was writing and then the blogs that Dylan was writing because we both sort of... Dylan and I didn't know each other before oh, this really? started. Right. We knew each other from Twitter. We'd met once at Kim.com's house. <laughs> so he was drawn in through my writing and he started blogging independently and yeah, we just were on Facebook Messenger the whole time just sharing information back and forth. And yeah. then about two weeks in I invited them round to my house for pizza and said, you know, should we do a Kickstarter to get some money to go to America and like chase this thing down. So from those blogs, we had about five friends that were just just sort of, I guess, like curious Internet people. They were smart. They were all from different backgrounds. They all had different things to add. Um, and yes, yeah, so it was kind of like Dylan and I and the tickle friends is how okay. we, what we called ourselves.
0: Um, and so finally, we'll come to the last part of the podcast in which we talk about our personal myth highlights. Um, Aaron, can I start with you and find out what stood out for you in this year's insanely busy and caffeinated myth?
3: Well, in the second week, uh, we talked about our first week highlight- highlights last week. But in my second week, I must say that my, all my standouts, I think, were, in fact, documentaries in Jackson Heights, which we've just discussed, and then two other really great. In fact, I saw five really great documentaries in week two, but, but the two other ones, which I thought were really outstanding were Fire at Sea and Tower. So Fire at Sea won the Golden Bear this year at the Berlin Film Festival for Best Film. Uh, It's directed by Gianfranco Rossi, an Italian director, and it's shot on the island of Lampedusa and it is about the refugee crisis in Europe. Um... I think I went into this film probably expecting something fairly conventional, but it's not at all conventional. It doesn't, again, it doesn't have any voiceover. It doesn't have any narrative to speak of. There's only one kind of title card at the beginning that gives you a sense of the statistics in terms of how many people have tried to cross the Mediterranean, how many people have landed on the island, how many people have also drowned. Um, but after that, the film really becomes this really actually quite beautiful meditation on the idea of this island and it contrasts those refugees who are trying to get to the island with the people who live on the island and so it really becomes a portrait of life and death on and around this island. Particularly there is a 12-year-old boy called Samuel who is the child or the grandchild of of fishermen on the island and and the film really kind of follows him around and his, his kind of daily activities. yeah, I think it's remarkably done and has a pretty clear point to make without ever being dogmatic about that and with without ever presenting it to you in an obvious way. yeah, I think I think the film is a kind of clear call out for, Action and and for and for compassion as well in in terms of this this refugee crisis in Europe, but it's also a really intelligent film in the way that it deals with the issue of representation. It's really outstanding. I don't know if it's going to get any kind of cinema release, but if it look out for it if you see it.
1: I think it's a big um, human interest film. So I well, it's very, very timely. It's so very timely. I feel yeah. like there might be you know hopefully Melbourne mm. has you know myriad festivals. Hopefully one of them will will pick it up again.
3: For now the screening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just to briefly mention, I saw another really great documentary yesterday on the very last day of Myth called Tower, which is an American film about the first mass shooting in America, which took place 50 years ago this year in 1966, when a gunman scaled the university clock tower on the University of Texas campus and began shooting at people randomly. It was incredibly moving. It was the only film in Myth that's made me cry. It was a really audacious combination of rotoscope animation, archival footage and I guess verbatim theatre in that interviews with survivors were performed by actors in animation but then at a certain point the film started cross-cutting between that animation and the actual people the real people who'd been interviewed and that was really effective I could hear a lot of people crying around me it was like it was a it was a very powerful film um, and again is is kind of I think a film that dealt in really intelligent ways with how to tell a story of trauma definitely worth seeking out and did you have any highlights
1: I just want to talk about Aquarius.
3: Oh yeah, I saw that at Sydney Film Festival. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it was raved about. It was very well received at mm. Sydney Film Festival. I think it got the audience. It favourite did get the Oh
3: no, it got the it got the prize. Oh, it, a prize. Yeah, okay. the, the audience favourite went to Mustang, but mm-hmm. the actual festival competition prize went oh, to wonderful. Aquarius. Well,
1: it deserves it. So it's this uh, Aquarius is a, a two and a half hour film directed by um, Kleber Mendonça Filho. Um, excuse my pronunciation. Uh, so it's a Brazilian film and really stunning you know all the way through so what it basically tracks the life of maybe a 60 something year old woman named Clara living in an apartment in an apartment building that is um kind of being targeted by a larger corporate company for de- demolition and then they're going to replace it with you know some new shit hot fancy um but atmosphereless building i suppose so it's like you know it looks like an apartment building that's been there for years and has a lot of kind of spirit and this woman has been living there so it opens with the woman as a 30 something year old um And I found her very engaging in this opening scene, almost so that I was sad when I realised it shifted 30 years ahead. But so she gives this wonderful performance. It sort of sets it up as this warm family where she's, you know, she has three children who are toddlers at the time and then it shifts forward 30 years later um, and kind of never announces or signposts that it's the same woman, but, you know, through a number of kind of, you know, plot revelations, you do realise that it's the same woman. And the way that it just pays attention to the, the um, kind of minutiae of her life is really wonderful and beautiful and her, her attitude towards her family and her history and her city is really wonderful and engaging and i i loved it and the final scene is kind of a killer so yeah
3: yeah i loved mm. it too and and again i mean in some ways this film bears comparison in things to come in terms of being a portrait of a woman an older woman mm. who is not necessarily behaving in conventional ways you know and who doesn't necessarily give us the kind of uh, traits that we might expect from older women she's Mm. not necessarily motherly she's not necessarily kind of gentle or she's she's a really great character Um, and she's also a music critic which I appreciated very much (laughs) a pop music critic I was like wow I don't feel like I've seen a pop music critic in a fictional film before this is well almost famous aside let's not go there. (laughs) there yeah
1: yeah Yeah, and I also want to mention that um, this film is directed... The director did Neighbouring Sounds, which screened at MIF in 2012, Mm. and it was like this astonishing film when I saw it, just a portrait of a full neighbourhood in Brazil, um, and sort of all of these goings-on, these relationships between people in houses, not necessarily romantic relationships, but just, you know, neighbourly relationships, friendly or not. Given the name Neighbouring Sounds, we had this incredible attention to to oral detail, and that carries through to Aquarius, mm. and I just found it so clever what, what the director was doing. And I don't know who the sound editor was, but just it was a very affecting and very kind of realistic portrait I loved it you know very good for my um for my ears for everyone (laughs) Anyway, and what else? I kind of, I loved Winter at Westbeth, so an Australian documentary filmed in New York by uh, Rowan Spong, who is a Melbourne filmmaker, um, and it, just a portrait of this uh, a building called Westbeth in Manhattan that, that is home to 385, I think, elderly residents, elderly artists who sort of move there in order to continue their practice and have a rent-controlled apartment for, you know, the rest of their life. Um, it's just this incredible portrait of three of the residents um, and the director pays this you know, beautiful attention to them and their lives and their pursuits and their histories and it's um, so much fun as well. Mm, so. It's
0: beautiful, like seeing a 95-year-old dancer. And yeah.
1: There's,
0: there's, there's, there's the life stories of these people and they never really got that famous and never excelled to you know, hu- to, you know, know, amazing heights by which we know their names, but they just seem to have these wonderfully fulfilling artistic lives that I thought he... He just lavished this detail on them that was beautiful, I thought.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah good. And that is getting a cinema release. I think it will be out maybe in October, mm. October or November. Yeah, I think it was October. Um, by Vendetta Films. So keep an eye out for that one. hmm <laughs> What
3: about you,
2: Anders? Cool. Look, one film I would love to uh, sh- give a shout-out to is uh, Childhood of a Leader. Uh, this is a wildly overconfident directorial debut. Um, Brady Corbett, who you'd know as a 27-year-old American actor, he was in the American remake of Funny Games. Um, oh, He's right. like the blonde hair guy. Okay. Um, he's mm-hmm. made this uh, really intriguing movie about the childhood of a future Fictitional Fascist Dictator. But it's set in the very real uh, post-World War One time period. So uh, he basically structures the film. There's a prologue and an epilogue, and then the bulk of the film is structured around three tantrums that this boy uh, froze. And uh, each one uh, is, uh, you know, ever more escalatingly uh, complex and uh, more violent than the last, I guess. So much really interesting stuff going on in this movie. The camera work was beautiful, all very free-flowing. The score, very arresting uh, score. Uh, Um, Scott
3: Walker did the score, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, and it does co-star Robert Pattinson, so I'm hoping that might give it some sort of release. Mm. Uh, I'm dying to watch it again, actually. I'm not sure what what he's trying to say about the nature of fascism by focusing on the childhood of this kid. But that didn't really bother me. What I There was one moment that I just want to particularly single out where, so the prologue is all this sort of newsreel footage of sort of Europeans welcoming the Americans and the liberation, liberation post-World War One, And a lot of it's filmed on trains, from trains. Um, and it's got this very arresting score while we see that. And then we cut to this, like, small town and there's this very slow zoom in onto a church window where we see this boy, the child of who will become a leader. And it's as if he's, like, bringing all of that historical momentum, like, to bear on, like, one kid. Mm. It's quite... Amazing, really, and very intense. So, yeah, totally recommend it on many levels. Wonderful. <laughs> is, it,
3: is it set somewhere specific? Is it set in an actual town? Yes,
2: so it's set in a sort of rural French town, a okay. big house. Yeah. Um, and basically they're an American family who are living there while uh, the father of the family works on the Treaty of Versailles.
3: Right, so okay. So that's, how, that's yeah. why they've
2: come to be there. And the final, the epilogue, which is set, like, decades into the future, is yeah, incredible as well. So, yeah, really, for a 27-year-old director, it, was, it blew me away. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So I recommend that one and recommend I'm Not a Serial Killer, which is a really interesting young adult novel adaptation uh, filmed on 16mm film, really grainy, really gory like quite intense um it follows a teenage sociopath uh who is like on the hunt for a uh serial killer in small town america i just thought it was very uh atmospheric another great score actually organ music score recommend that one and then i'd also like to give a shout out to paris0559 oh i
3: missed that yeah so disappointed to miss it
2: a pretty cool um film. I think it won a Berlin the Audience Prize. Um, And yeah, the sort of notable thing about this movie is it starts with this sort of 20 minute explicit gay orgy, which is really well choreographed and filmed. And it's sort of, it's amazing how with no dialogue whatsoever, uh, the sort of central relationship of this film between two men and the sort of narrative drive is all sort of established in the context of this um, huge sex scene. So I thought that's kind of cool and interesting as well.
0: <laughs> um, I've got a uh, for my favourite film of the festival. I also had a um, documentary because part through the festival, and when you and I caught up and we were talking about um, music documentaries and how almost all of them fail yeah. to bring anything. Although
3: in. I did see a good one at the festival, yeah. but no, talk about talk about. Well, this one blew going. me away because
0: I was not really expecting it so far. So the film is Sunita
3: Oh right,
0: which um, right. had the synopsis of being about a teenage girl in a. Uh, living in Iran who had worshipped Rihanna. And so I was like, well, I've got to to see a film at 1pm because I've seen a film before. I may as well go and see this thing. And it turned out that's like over and done with in about... Rihanna gets a cursory mention once in the film, but it's actually entirely this amazing... Um, story of this girl who's an Afghan refugee who's living as an undocumented migrant in Tehran. She's like responsible for cleaning this uh, children's school that she's allowed to study at because she kind of, you know, works there. Right. Um, and so she does drama therapy where in this, one of the early scenes she's told to reenact the most horrific memory that she has and then recreate that memory using the her classmates as statues. She has recreates this scene where the, the Taliban have pulled her family over and it's just this horrible thing and you could hear the audience which kind of in tears within about 10 minutes. And then on the back of this and of and, and her classmates getting sold off as child brides and coming to school with black eyes and you know, comparing their values, like oh, I was worth three thousand US dollars, oh, I was worth nine thousand, whatever. She's kind of decides to be make become a rapper and rap about her life, and so she's she's got, she has a song that she releases partway through the film onto the internet about you know being a child bride, and it goes viral, and suddenly it, the film take goes off in this totally different direction. But right. up, up until that point, her mother comes back from Afghanistan to bring her back because her brother needs nine thousand dollars to be able to buy his wife, and so she needs to be sold for nine thousand dollars to be able, so her brother can. And you know, have this transaction, and so she. Um, this puts the documentarian in this really strange situation of like, you know, how am I going to keep making this movie if she goes back? You know, and then her mother says, well, if you give me two thousand dollars, then well, you can have her for another six months. And so it becomes this whole transactional thing where they're talking about her dollar, this girl's dollar value, you know, in front of her and this sort of stuff. And so. Wow. It's just, it never does anything predictable. It's really, really strange and it ends in a really unusual place as well where you wouldn't expect. But it was, it was one of the most emotionally engaging films I've seen in a long time. Mm.
1: Well, I skipped that one. Now you're making me regret the decision. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Um, It doesn't have a release date yet, but it's already, she's already become a bit of a like a Malala style.
1: It did Yeah, got a lot of attention at Sundance and since then. So it should be one that I think Mm. will get more exposure. Yeah, there's
0: quite a few interviews for this girl who's now 19 because it was filmed over a four or five year period. Mm. Right. Um, and so she's getting a lot of attention and finally the film I would like to throw a bit more attention toward is Staying Vertical which was <laughs> the, like famously divisive at oh, Cannes yeah. and seems to have gotten quite a lot of negative and, and reviews but so was
2: this uh, the follow up to Stranger by the Lake*? yes so yep. this is
0: um, Alain Guaraudi I think he pronounce his name that's his second film, and it's it's a very strange story about sexuality and fatherhood, which actually has one of the best live birth scenes going back to last week's oh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> I mean, I've seen some pretty good. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've been around childbirths, and they didn't look like this. But it's very <laughs> close up, very intimate. Yes, and but that's not even the most arresting image in the film. So it mm-hmm. seems like it's this fairy tale story about this guy who arrives as a screenwriter, wandering over a hill, hiking in southern France. He meets this shepherdess, and then they he just walks into their life. They have a kid. You know, mm. it's minimal. It's like within ten minutes, you're kind of in this That's strange it, situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then immediately he starts moving locations. Unlike Stranger by the Lake, which I understand takes place in pretty much one mm. one location. Yeah, yeah.
1: repetition. And so he's moving still, around these yeah.
0: French towns, and he brings in these families, and there's a lot of homoeroticism going on, and everybody seems to be pansexual. And then, it, but he also kind of takes these really serious st- uh, subjects, like about um, fatherhood and re- and you know and postnatal depression, and just does it all in this fairy tale way, which is so there's not much common sense. There's a lot of really arresting images and interesting vignettes and stuff, but it. It doesn't quite hold together in the way you think it's going to, but there was so much going on, and I'd never really seen this sort of vision before that I thought it was worth mentioning, even if it's not for So false. you recommend Ooh. it? Yeah. If you <gasps> feel uncomfortable, oh, I don't know.
3: A see?
1: qualified recommendation.
3: Oh, yeah, a qualified
2: recommendation, yeah. Right, right. I've heard there's uh, an oddly large number of jokes about Australia. Yes, there's, yeah. Australia. <laughs> there's some yeah. very
0: overt racism, um, <laughs> all of it to do with homosexual activity. Okay. Yeah. So, Great. I, yeah. but and apparently, according to one interview, he wrote those jokes while he was on his way to the myth in 2013 with Stranger uh-huh. by the Lake. Yeah, right. Oh. He just thought he'd, that would be an interesting way to identify somebody as being xenophobic, would be to throw in all these references to how horrible Australia is.
1: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, yeah, I can't argue with That's that. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's totally yeah. fair. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Talking of a lot going on, do we have time to mention The Handmaiden?
1: Yes, let's do that.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah, there was a lot going on in that film. Quite a lot, <laughs> Quite a lot going on.
2: Not the least in terms of the narrative. Yeah. Which doubled and triple backed on itself. Yeah, um, yeah, There were a lot of twists. Some of them you saw coming. Some of them I didn't. Uh, and and points of view. Um, there was, uh, you know, torture. The, the oh, was there an- was
3: torture. There was porn. There was sex. There was everything. It was it was our last film of the festival, yeah, it and so it was <laughs>
0: quite a way to go out. <laughs> because Park chan does have the danger of having style over substance. So there was enough going on mm. to justify his flashiness.
2: Um, Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. A very interesting depiction of um, like female sexuality. I think. Yes. Um, uh, Lots of female, all the women, uh, or the the two main women, um, sort of their lovemaking is very. There was one very extended scene where it sort of revelled in their lovemaking but I thought not in a particularly gratuit- or it was gratuitous <laughs> I mean you could say it was gratuitous but also exciting and yeah interesting no, it was as well. great it was I yeah. mean it was
3: sexy it was fun yeah. I mean and I, I think I think those two things were key funnily enough afterwards it made me think about Carol which of course was much lauded but which had a kind of key sex scene that was really so chased so mm, chased very, so yeah. kind of
2: compared to this yeah definitely.
3: yeah and yeah. what I actually really enjoyed yeah. about this film is that to so we should say this this film is adapted from Sarah Waters novel Fingersmith which is set I mean and 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 he has changed the setting to kind of 1930s South Korea um, so we could call it a, a very loose adaptation because Sarah Waters' original book is set during Victorian Britain. It's a film which, despite its various mad forays into some quite disturbing avenues, ends up actually being really fun. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. But someone fainted in our screening, so be warned. Yeah. <laughs> there are a few scenes that are pretty out there.
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that'll definitely get a release, that one, so... Looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah.
3: Same. Yeah. Well,
0: thank you for making it through to the end of this fairly long um, discussion about a Myth and forth- some forthcoming films. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Ramble, ramble. See
1: you, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>